Welcome, everybody, to the Lead Like a Boss podcast. I'm your host, George Chirpolitis, and boy, have I got a guest for you today. David Gruder is an award-winning psychologist, and he'll give you the background on that in a second. But in my conversations with him, I found that he is someone who really brings a deep sense of psychology, but also practical business advice. You're going to love this, folks. David, thanks for being on the show. Oh, George, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'm, I've been looking forward to this. David, you are from Manhattan, New York. Uh, you're, you've got one of those down-to-earth personalities that everybody loves. And your bio is, is extensive. We can go on all for the whole podcast just talking about all your awards, accolades, you know, your academic achievements. But there's a story that we talked about a little bit ago um, that has to do with a very popular pop culture event. So I want to touch on that in a second. But you're a psychologist by trade, but that's not quite where you're at these days. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> sure. Uh, first of all, I, I was born in Manhattan. I live in San Diego, California. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's different, especially now. <laughs> a little different. And, you know, it's it's a cool thing because I, I like to integrate the best of the New York mentality with the best of the California mentality. So I'm a laid back crazy man or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> um, right. So... Uh, you're a recovering psychologist, from what I understand. Well, I refer to myself as a recovering psychologist and professional troublemaker, <laughs> uh, because that's the the joy that I get to have at this point in my life is I'm an elder. I get to be an elder, and and to be a really effective elder, there's always this combination of bringing hopefully wisdom gained over the decades with a devil may care attitude. <laughs> yes, it's hard to get in trouble at that stage, right? You know, you, yeah, I get it. I get right. It. <laughs> and in fact, you know, the reason I got my doctorate in the first place, I, I really didn't care per, per se about my, uh, about getting a doctorate, but I got my doctorate in clinical and organizational development psychology so that I could become a licensed psychologist so that I could have essentially societal permission to be a troublemaker. <laughs> Okay, great. I mean, yes, I, I, I get it. I get it. So talk to me about that pivotal moment in your youth where you kind of made that shift and you realize, hey, I can go somewhere with this. Right. Well, you know, one of the big pivotal moments was when my parents sent me to Woodstock. Oh, your parents sent you to Woodstock? Yes. Most parents were saying, don't go to Woodstock. <laughs> so the, the brief story about that, <laughs> uh, before we get to the, uh, to what I, what I learned or how I was, how I was um, kind of set on my life path in a lot of ways through my Woodstock experience was that I grew up very, very involved in performing music, acting, directing, uh, all, of, all of those kinds of things. And my parents were very supportive of that. And somehow, even though they weren't particularly wealthy, they managed to scrape enough money together to send me off to a summer camp in the, in the summertime. That was a, ca a camp for the performing arts. Ah, okay. And it was up, up in the Berkshires of Massachusetts, lovely, lovely country setting. That's how you and got so hooked. The, 
the spring of 1969, the camp director sends a note home to the parents saying, for the first time in the camp's history, we're going to have an optional field trip to a music and arts fair in upstate New York. Do you want to send your kid? <laughs> and Sounds so course, innocuous. Uh, and nobody, well, he mentioned Woodstock, but Woodstock had existed as this little, uh, little arts It wasn't fair. infamous yet. No, nobody knew what the 1969 version of Woodstock was going to end up being ahead of time. So my parents naively look at me and say, well, what do you think? You want to do this? And I said, sure. <laughs> hey, go play music in the farm. Great. <laughs> yeah. So I thought I was going for the music. Oh, and we it, it's a funny thing because the camp hired a, a, a plush charter long distance bus uh, with reclining seats. And by the end of the first day, we had the only working bathroom at Woodstock and we weren't telling anybody. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Uh, Peter Pan bus lines. Actually, the bus we came in is in the Woodstock documentary movie because we arrived ahead of time and we were able to park at the top of the hill. Wow. So David, your parents send you to the farm thinking that you're going to play some music on the farm. And then what happened? <laughs> so then we arrive at Woodstock, this this group from this camp for the performing arts that my parents were kind enough to send me to in the summertime. And I'm thinking I'm there for the music. And believe me, the music was over the moon. By and large, there were a couple of acts that weren't so great. But the music was amazing. But what I couldn't have known ahead of time was that being there was going to transform my worldview. Uh, I I arrived, this is true, I arrived at Woodstock, a drug-free virgin. I left Woodstock, a drug-free virgin. Wow. <laughs> you I and maybe late, three or four other people. <laughs> I, well, I was a late bloomer and I was only 15 years old. Okay. But what happened for me there was that I got to experience for the very first time what it was like to be in a city, although temporary, but a temporary city of a half a million people who joined together to show the world that it was possible for a group that large to really have each other's backs. Mm. Because the Woodstock, the pre people who were producing Woodstock would get on stage in between acts and would tell us what the news coverage was that oh, we yeah. were getting. I mean, my parents, bless their souls, my parents are sitting at home discovering from the from the news coverage what they've sent their son to. <laughs> if my father could have helicoptered in, he would have plucked me out of there in a heartbeat. If my what mother could do? have- What did we do? I know. And my parents were very different. So if my mother could have helicoptered in, she would have joined me. But <laughs> uh, the what happened for me there was that as a result of experiencing what it was like for a half a million people to consciously be challenged to and joined and and to join together to meet this challenge to prove to the world that we could have each other's backs we could love each other we could have an event that wasn't going to result in rioting or in people killing each other yeah. or any of those kinds of things and we rose to that to be in a city of a half a million people who have joined together in that spirit is undescribable. It's beyond words. And it impacted me in the following way. 
Over time, after Woodstock, I got to really understand through that experience what the wisdom was that was underneath the cliche in the 1960s of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Mm. And what I came to realize beneath the cliche was that in the 1960s, the, the free love thing was really about looking for a deeper way to bond and connect with each other over and above the traditional marriage expectation where you were you were entering into a marriage because that's what you were expected to do. Mm. So what was the deeper intimacy level of that beyond the contract, if you will? And that was the wisdom underneath the sex part of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The drugs part of sex, drugs, and rock and roll was that we were searching in the 1960s for a way to be more fully and deeply authentic in contrast to the conformity that was installed in the name of the 1950s version of the American dream, that there was something we knew was wrong with that because it was it was replacing authenticity with conformity. Right. And what was underneath the rock and roll part of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll cliche was that for the first time in the history of music, lyrics were appearing in songs that were telling us that we had more power to positively impact the world than we ever knew. Mm. So what this whole notion was uh, underneath the cliche was I started to put together that we all have three core drives. Okay, so you're connecting you're connecting the the underlying impact and your understanding of those three cliches now to how it can apply in real world and and maybe even for business. You got it. Exactly. Okay. okay. So the the drugs part of sex, drugs, and rock and roll was about the first of our three core drives, which is to be who we truly are. Oh, yeah. It's authenticity. The, the sex part of sex, drugs, and rock and roll is about the drive in us to bond with others. It's our drive for connection. Yeah. And the rock and roll part, what I was mentioning just now about what the lyrics were telling us in the 1960s was capturing the essence of our third core drive, which is the drive to influence the round of the world around us, which is our drive for impact. So these three core drives of, of authenticity, connection, and impact are what makes us whole and complete as human beings. So that's what was set in motion inside me from Woodstock. And then decades later, when I was actually functioning as a psychologist, I became really curious about a couple of things that ended up verifying these three core drives. One was what did people who, uh, who really benefited from therapy, no matter how messed up an upbringing they had, what did they intuitively or deliberately do that enabled them to benefit from therapy versus people who didn't benefit from therapy, even if they came from pretty garden variety backgrounds? And mm. then that got me into looking at what created sustainable happiness. And that then got me into looking at what integrity really is 
And that got me into looking at what sustainably su successful entrepreneurship involved. And okay. I got to reel you, I gotta reel you in. I got to reel you in. You're, 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 you're amazing. This is, there's so much to unpack here that I kind of just kind of pull it back in. So, <laughs> so, I mean, the authenticity, the, the bonding uh, with your, with your, your clients or your market, that's super easy to understand the value in that uh, and the influence and impact. Um, talk to me about the authenticity because we had a little bit of a, a discussion before we did the recording. And I think one of the things that we see happening a lot in business today is, you know, where people who start a business, they see a problem. Often the problem is their own problem and they find a solution for that problem. And then they figure the whole world wants that solution as well. And they form a business around it. Right. right. And where that's not necessarily a bad idea, contrast that kind of modeling to the, the purpose-driven modeling that, that we see often tends to circumvent some of that transactional behavior that we see in businesses today. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you about that by sharing a, another turning point of mine as a business person. This goes back to 1988 okay. when I was moving into larger quarters than I'd ever been in before which, with the increase in overhead and uh, had my financial anxiety about all of that and also formed my first uh, company uh, with a registered trademark, which was at that time Willingness Works. And... I was challenged right as I was moving into these larger quarters with higher overhead to do something that seemed completely contradictory to my money anxiety. Okay. What I was challenged to do was to, from then on, only work with people who authentically wanted what I most loved to offer. Oh, that makes and my sense. instant reaction to that was my sphincter tightened. <laughs> and I went, oh, I can't, I can't do that. Not with this increased overhead. And then I sat with it because I'm kind of a slow to warm up guy. So, you know, you introduce change to me and my knee jerk reaction is no, uh, but I know that about myself. So I don't take that seriously anymore. And you're in good and, company. I think a lot of people are like that. Yeah. And so I don't take that seriously about myself anymore. I know that initial reaction has no bearing on whether the real answer is a no or a yes. So I just sit back and I wait for clarity to emerge. And so the clarity emerged that I was to do this paradoxical commitment. So I entered into this covenant uh, about that. Literally, and this is not embellished because time has passed by or anything like that. Literally within six months of making this commitment to only work with people who authentically loved what I most uh, wanted, what I most loved to offer, I had a waiting list business <laughs> that never stopped being waiting list. Okay, well, so let's... actually, it did stop being waiting list because I stopped the waiting list and started filling other people's practices because I didn't have a way of of reasonably managing the waiting list. Yeah, you didn't want to you didn't want to have a, a hundred person coaching team in your in your in your business. I, I, I get that. That wasn't my my business model at that point in time. Okay, so let's let's talk about how does the average 
service-based business or even product-based business, you know, we're talking about maybe a three to $5 million gross sales operation, maybe, you know, three to 10 employees. How does, how does what you said in terms of creating a purpose-driven business, how does that translate to them? How do, how does an owner like that take what you said and practically apply it? Right. What we do is we look at the intersection of our talent, not just ours, but the talent of talents of our team. team. Yeah. So our collective talents, the intersection of our talents, our passion, the kind of difference we want to make and what market demand is by whom. Mm. Not just so people who are willing to pay. Yeah, not uh, definitely people who are willing to pay what we have chosen to charge, but uh, but people who are right matched, who we know are the, the right niche for the version of what we're offering that probably others are offering some other version of. Right. There's a saying from the psychology of branding, you never want to try to be the best. We try harder. You, yeah, that, that, that's cool, but that wasn't about being the best. It was about being the only, okay. that's what you want to be in branding. You okay. want to identify where you are the only choice. Oh, so I see. Avis decided they didn't know whether they were ever going to become number one at that time that they inaugurated that campaign. And we try harder. Uh, Hertz was number one in rent-a-cars. Ava said, how can we position ourselves to, uh, to capitalize on the fact that we're not number one? And they decided that the secret to their success was going to be customer service. They, they couldn't offer rates that were lower than Avis. They couldn't offer bigger fleets. They couldn't offer bigger fleets. They had to niche themselves in a way that distinguished them in the marketplace as the only choice for people renting cars who wanted a high level of customer service. They wanted a good experience around a car rental. Right. So they I actually were a market leader long before the economy emerged in the first decade of the 2000s into the experience economy. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go back to, to how we apply that to, to a small business. So let's say you're, um, um, let's pick something that's really common. So let's say you're a service garage. So you've got gas and maybe you've got three or four bays. Um, you know, maybe you're changing tires seasonally, that type of a, of a, of a business. It's a fairly commodity business, obviously. So how does someone running a business like that go about niching and understanding and, and applying purpose-driven techniques to grow their business or to grow, improve their bottom line, have more loyalty with their customers, et cetera? Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, that's something that I do a lot of mentoring with. And what I, what I ask business people, what I would ask this, this hypothetical garage uh, owner and team is give me a profile 
that describes the, the qualities of the customers you have had up until this point that are your dream customers. So I want, uh, what I want is not simply the demographics. I want the psychographics. I want what, what it is that these customers have as traits yeah. that make them the people that you most want to serve. Right. And so what that ends up revolving around, of course, is uh, with some with some garages, it's going to be customers who will trust us that we're not we're not trying to rip them off um, or customers who know that we charge a little bit more than what others charge, but keep coming back to us over and over again because they have an experience with us that they keep telling us is unlike any other mechanic that they've ever worked with. So I'm we sure. identify that sweet spot. Yeah. And I'm sure that uh, most of these types of businesses don't understand the value of doing that type of work they, because they can't see the, they can't see the return on investment of doing that kind of work. So how do we teach them that there is an ROI in that? Right. So two parts to that. Some the, the other part is some businesses do recognize that, but they don't know how to go about doing yes. it. Yes. And that's the easier part because I know how to go about doing that. But the harder part connects to one of my favorite jokes, which is how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> okay, I give how many? <laughs> Only one, but the light bulb has to really want to change. <laughs> <laughs> so where, where we go, where I teach people to go to is this. I teach them to ask if, if you're a consultant, for example, um, or if, if they're a client of mine, I'll ask this myself to ask the question, what are the top three biggest challenges you currently have with your business that if a fairy godmother could come in and wave a magic wand to disappear those, they would make the biggest difference for you. <clears throat> and what I'm listening for doesn't matter to me what their answers are. What I'm listening for is the parts of their answers to that question that match with where my sweet spots are in, a, in being able to help them. So you're being a product of the product. You're looking for clients that are a good match for your style of, of delivering your, your lessons, your teaching, your coaching. Ex they, the intersection between that and what they are most highly motivated to want to do something about. Right. I don't decide for people what they should be motivated to do something about. Uh, they, and, and whatever it is that they're motiv motivated to do something about, there's always stuff they don't know that they don't know yeah. that's preventing them from reaching those goals. And uh, there's stuff that they do know, but they don't know what to do about. And so what I'm looking for is that because, uh, because the presenting problem is almost never the cause of the presenting problem. Of course. Of course. No, I, I, I love it. I get it because most people, they will treat the symptom of the, of the problem, but not the cause of the problem. And often it's because they either don't know how to identify the cause or they're afraid to look at the cause. Right. And so they're right. just and constantly trying to deal with the, the effect. 
Yes. And I'm glad you brought up the, the fear factor because that's present an awful lot. And so when that shows up, what I take people through is a very simple exercise where I have them basically take a piece of paper and draw a vertical line across down the middle of the piece of paper. So they have two columns and one column. And I have to assist them with this because they don't usually know how to how to fully fill out both of these columns. The first column is the risks I will or might be taking if I moved in the direction that I think I want to move in, but I'm afraid to. Mm -hmm. And the other column is the prices I will continue to pay if I don't take these risks. Yes. Yeah. And by the time I've helped them fully fill out both columns, I, I am then able to say to them, now for the first time, you are at informed consent choice. Now you're fully informed about the risks and the prices. And now that your eyes are completely open, you're totally free to choose. There's no gun to your head. You can say, you know what? The risks are uh, are higher than the prices at this point in time. I'm not going to go in this direction yet. I'm going to do this other thing over here instead. Or uh, you're going to say, risks be damned. The prices that I'm going to continue to pay if I don't make these changes are so high that I'm going to take a leap, of, uh, a leap of faith. And David, don't we often see that it, without having somebody to take you by the hand, and walk you down that road, even if you know intellectually that that's the exercise you need to do. It's kind of like going to the gym. You go to the gym and you do, you know, like say 10 reps without having a trainer there saying, George, you can do two more, do two more, you know, do two more, you know, without having someone there to goad you and to push you to do a little bit more, you tend to avoid it altogether. And I mean, I think most owners, most business owners know they need to do the exercise. I mean, I think it sounds a little bit like a SWAT exercise. A little. They know to do it. They know it will help, but without having somebody to guide them to actually go through it all the way, they tend not to get those benefits or they tend not to do it at all. Exactly. Look, the bottom line is leaders lead, entrepreneurs do business at the level of their self-development limitations, despite their highest intentions. Oh, that's no harm, like no that. shame, no fault, no blame. The difference between a successful and an unsuccessful entrepreneur is that a successful entrepreneur is awake about the fact that they have blind spots yeah. and they seek competent people out who will illuminate those blind spots and then help them fill them. An yeah. incompetent or a, 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 an entrepreneur who will not succeed is an entrepreneur who refuses to recognize the fact that they have blind spots so they don't seek the help that they need until after the business has already imploded. <laughs> yeah, it's. It, I can't remember who said it, but I mean, I think the concept is pretty widely accepted. You, as a leader, as a business owner, you never want to be the smartest person in the room because then you're, you're not getting any benefit. Right, right. That's true. I mean, you know, I've, I've always been surrounded by people who are smarter than I am. And that must and, be getting harder and harder to do these days. <laughs> that uh, was a sideways well, compliment there, David. Just thank take it. you. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very touched by that. And it's a needle in a haystack, but I still have those people. 
<laughs> Fabulous. And, and I know you've been doing this um, for a long time. You know, the awards are there. Um, I encourage people to, to go and, and check you out. And you're going to see the links to the various things uh, along the, the bottom of the screen. Uh, in the show notes, you're going to see links to the various websites and programs that David's um, got going. There's many of them. Something for everyone, actually, you know, whether it's you know, you're a large corporation or you're, you know, an, a starting out entrepreneur, there's lots of value. Um, as we wrap up, David, what's hot these days? What are you working on? What do we need to know about? What what do we I mean, I see the books there. I see the images of the books. Maybe talk a little bit about what's going on with uh, your new book. Sure. Uh, before I say that, I am not for everyone. Oh, okay. I'm absolutely not for everyone. Okay. I am for those who are psychologically and spiritually minded enough so that they want to align their business success with the right people skills, the right leadership skills, and a sense of higher purpose, higher okay. love and wisdom. I'm only for those people because I'll drive anyone else crazy with how I work from how I work. I stand corrected, but you got to understand the lead like a boss community is all about that. So we don't really talk about those other folks. Oh, got it. Okay. <laughs> well, that's perfect. That's my kind of community. Uh, awesome. So there were, there were two initiatives that are um, really front and center for me right now. Uh, and the business initiative has to do with the nimble C-suite and the nimble company, which is basic these these interconnected books are uh, are frameworks complete frameworks for how to restructure your executive team and your company culture to be upheavals resilient in a time when we're going to we're we're going to continue to have an unfolding parade of upheavals and where the marketplace has shifted from the products marketplace to the experience marketplace now to the transformation marketplace the purpose-driven marketplace because the old structures of business that worked for businesses to be profitable in the past those structures are not facilitative of business success in the age of socially responsible transformation market oriented businesses. Yeah, so 100%. these books don't tell you what to do. They tell you, they show you how to do it. Yeah, that's great. That's amazing. And and you're right, because you know the the level at which change is happening is increasing exponentially every year. And if you if you don't have that if you don't have that, if you build it all about the how, you're you're always going to be behind the eight ball. You're never going to be able to catch up. Always. And one of the big problems connected with that is that most entrepreneurs, most business people really don't know the difference between strategy and tactics. No. They think they're, they work on tactics before they've got a strategy that guides what tactics are selected and the <laughs> sequence in which they're they're implemented. Yeah. So yes, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's so, one of the two projects. We are definitely going to have a, a, an expanded conversation on that topic because I see that often the, the idea of not understanding the difference between strategy and tactics and putting the horse before the cart happens all the time. And I get that, that common refrain, it didn't work. The tactic didn't work and it's like okay but why did you do the tactic 
oh, well, because everyone else is doing it or because some salesperson told me I should do it or I saw it in a book or, you know. Yeah, so that's a that's we we're gonna do a deep dive on that because I think a lot of our audience needs to understand you know the difference and how they actually make it happen, how they can actually plan a strategy. But there's I think there's something else that you want to share with us about what's happening next for you, right? Yeah, uh, the quick thing that I'll say about what you just said is that what part one of the many things that makes me an odd duck as a psychologist is that be, uh, ten years before I finished my doctorate, I was trained in something called master planning, which is yeah. building 50 to 100 year plans for the arc of a business or a nonprofit or an academic institution. Wow. And it's out of that training that wasn't part of my psychologist training that I understand the, the differences between strategic thinking and tactical thinking. Uh, that's great. That's really um, great. It's, Built it's, the last, right? I mean, well, absolutely. Yeah. The other project is is kind of the macro project that I'm doing that the business work that I do is uh, one of the ways in which I uh, I implement that macro project. It's called revisioning humanity. Oh, because we're at a crossroads in humanity. Most people know that, but most people that I talk to don't really have a way of understanding what the nature of the crossroads is at a level that empowers them to decide what their role is in helping us move in one direction or another direction. Yeah, you don't have to just be a bystander. You can actually be a participant. Yes, and this goes back to Woodstock because I, <laughs> I saw- knew, I knew we were gonna get back to Woodstock somehow. <laughs> I saw and experienced what it was like to be in a group of a half a million people who said we can impact the world we can prove through how we show up with each other we can show something to the world about how people have much more power than they think and we can do it right now this is our laboratory yeah and we've we've seen that so many times i mean it's easy to point at the big mega stars you know the musks and the and the bezos of the world but we saw even during COVID, you know, local communities coming together to help their neighbors. I saw examples of nurses that set up vaccination, you know, centers like like lemonade stands in their community, and they were able to get you know vaccines to people in in areas where they weren't able to get to you know the the clinic. So yes, everyday people and everyday businesses can can participate in that movement and and be a part of the solution that they want to see happen in the world right yeah the whole notion that we are powerless that we can't have positive impact that's propaganda yeah that too many people have swallowed and believe and it is a lie yeah and just so you know uh, i know we've talked about this but i wanted to say it again that the lead like a boss uh, community is is all about that. I mean, my personal philosophy is that entrepreneurs are the problem solvers of the future. Um, not that I have anything against government per se. It's just that the future belongs to entrepreneurs who see the big picture and find a way to profit from making the world a better place. It doesn't exactly. have to be a doesn't have to be an either or. You don't have to be a martyr and lose everything to to make the world a better place. You can make the world a better place and profit from it as well. 
and ethically, ethically, of course. Precisely. And that's, of course, what brings you and me together, because we we embody and we value those fundamental values and have that capacity to set step uh, to step into the both and of that. When uh, when you have me back, maybe one of the things we can talk about is the issue of what the what the right interplay is supposed to be between government and business. Oh, boy, that thing. Definitely, definitely. So we got two hot topics to talk about: strategy and tactics, and then the interplay between um, governments and and business, and, and how those two can can work together or cooperate uh, to to achieve the results that we need to achieve. And the big problems that we're facing, right? I mean, environment, um, you know, the the growing population. There's so many technology, all these new technologies that are coming out that people are afraid of at increasing uh, velocities. Uh, there's a huge tsunami. I mean, there always is. I mean, let's let's you know, let's be you know honest. There always is. It's just that it's moving so much faster, or it seems like it's moving so much faster because our communications are so much better, and and that's the 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 socio psychological impact that we're seeing. So yeah, I get it, hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Clearly, so, you do. Yeah. So David, uh, tell us where we can find the book. Tell us how we can reach out to you. Um, you know, what's the best way to, to connect with you? Well, the, uh, the books are available everywhere from okay. where, wherever your online or offline bookseller is, you can get the nimble C-suite and the nimble company, whether in printed version or digital version or audio version. It's available Excellent. in all three varieties well um, i've so, ordered mine and they're on their way and i've already started listening to the audio books i'm everybody knows i'm a big audio fan so you know listening to the car the rolling university i i love it uh david thank you so much for being on the show i'm gonna send you the link to book the next one already so we're, we're gonna get there okay. and um you know pleasure thank you for the body of work that you've done and the the many many countless thousands of people that have benefited um, from your labor of love. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the light you're bringing through your lead like a, bo- a boss program. Thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Take care. You too. <laughs>